Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Cybersecurity, Protect Your Organization from Cyber Criminals. This webinar is hosted by AGH University, presented by AGH. AGH's technology services professionals are experienced in leveraging technology to solve organizational issues and meet goals while managing and mitigating the associated potential risks. Today's speaker is Brian Johnson. Brian's an experienced technology executive and consultant with a proven track record of leadership and technology management. As a technology and business leader with more than 30 years of experience, Brian successfully leverages his technology background, business acumen, and people management skills to help organizations link innovative technology solutions to their strategy and mission. Brian's a frequent speaker and advisor on technology developments and trends, certified public accountant. He has extensive expertise in IT risk advisory services and has earned several certifications in governance, information security, systems engineering, and operations management. As organizational leaders, you must learn how to combat the increasing volume and sophistication of cyber attacks. During this session, Brian will help you better understand some of the most dangerous and prevalent cyber threats, and he will offer practical advice for defending your organization from cyber criminals. Good afternoon, everybody. As Mike said, my name is Brian Johnson here at AGH, and today's topic is cybersecurity. Uh, as we get started, I'd like to throw out a question for you to think about as we work our way through the presentation today. And in the context of cybersecurity, do you feel that you will be prepared for the future, either individually or as an organization? So I'd like you to think about this as we work our way through the webinar today. And I have a little story to share with you too, because as I was thinking of that question and as I was finalizing the presentation late this summer, I stumbled across an article about the Girl Scouts that tied in very well to the presentation we're doing today. And based upon that particular article, I have to tell you that I think today's Girl Scouts will be prepared. I think that today's Girl Scouts will be prepared for the future. Because as it turns out, what I found in this article is that the Girl Scouts of the USA are working with Palo Alto Networks, that Silicon Valley cybersecurity firm, to help teach young kids, young girls in the Scouts to prepare themselves for a future in cybersecurity. And what I found particularly interesting and what caught my eye when I stumbled across this article is that by this time next year, the Girl Scouts will be offering 18, 18 cybersecurity badges for girls ranging from kindergarten up through seniors in high school. And if you're not familiar with the Scouts, badges mark accomplishments, the development of a competency or some event or some challenge that the kids do and then they're honored with earning the badges. So now they'll have 18 more in cybersecurity that they can earn starting next year. Sylvia Acevedo, who is the CEO of the Girl Scouts of USA, was interviewed about this development with Palo Alto, and she was quoted as saying that future generations must possess the skills to navigate the complexity in what she called the inherent challenges of the cyber realm. And we couldn't agree more. We think this is a great program. And so as I dug into this, I did more research. I was very amazed even at what they're going to teach the kids. The youngest of girls, the daisies and the brownies, which would be kindergartners up through third graders, are going to learn where information goes and how computers work. Not just what you do when you're interacting with the computer, but how the computer processes the information and what happens to that data if we're connected to the Internet than how a computer works, all to lay a foundation for better understanding where some of the cybersecurity vulnerabilities and threats might lie. The fourth through eighth graders, the juniors and cadets, they're gonna learn about viruses and cyber attacks. Not just the outcome, but actually how a virus works, how it takes advantage of a computer and network and spreads, and what tools and techniques do cyber criminals use when they attack our computers, our information, and our network. And then the oldest of kids, the seniors and ambassadors, the high school-aged kids from grades 9 through 12, they're actually going to study social engineering, which is one of the topics we'll visit this afternoon. And they're going to look at the psychological manipulation that takes place during things like phishing attempts. Again, not just the outcomes, but how these things are done by the cyber criminals and what we as consumers can do about it. One of the things that I found very interesting as I dug more into the program with the Girl Scouts is that the initiative for this came from the kids themselves. 
they were hearing from the younger girls that they were very concerned about things like cyberbullying, and these kids didn't want to get bullied online. And the older girls, recognizing the impact of cyber attacks, didn't just want to learn about it, they wanted to figure out ways that they could help solve the problem and help prevent cyber attacks from happening. Now, to be fair, this is actually part of the Girl Scouts STEM programs, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. The Girl Scouts have a lot of these particular programs for their kids. But through their own research, and by the way, this is corroborated with a number of industry experts, females represent only 11% of the cybersecurity workforce, only 11%. And not only is this important in its own right, but the Girl Scouts see this as a potential for creating more career opportunities for their membership, and yet another opportunity to get them involved in a STEM area. Now, when we sent out the invite for this webinar, we invited business people, managers, owners, senior executives. So you may be wondering, why are we talking about Girl Scouts in a business presentation? This is probably what I would call a thinly veiled attempt on my part to suggest that if learning more about cybersecurity is good enough for the Girl Scouts, shouldn't it be good enough for us? Or to state it differently, I really think that many of us could adjust our perspective on this topic and have a better appreciation of what role we might play as managers in helping solve the cybersecurity problem. So what's the goal today? What I'd like to accomplish is basically three things. I hope that I can give you a better understanding of what some of the most dangerous and prevalent cyber threats are, with the idea that if you know more about them, you're in a better position to combat the increasing volume of these types of attacks. And then the ultimate goal, of course, is to better defend your organization from the cyber criminals themselves. To do that, I want to try to accomplish three things in the short time we have together. The first is spend just a few more minutes talking about why I think this matters. Then we're going to talk about some of the imminent threats. Not all of them, we don't have time for that, but some that I think are prevalent for organizations like ours. And then we're going to wrap up by spending a few minutes talking about what we think management's role can be in providing good, strong cybersecurity. So, why does this matter? Or to be more specific, why should this matter to you? Why should you care and be involved in dealing with cybersecurity? To support that argument, I want to cite a couple studies. The first one was conducted by McKinsey a few years ago in collaboration with the World Economic Forum. And in this particular study, McKinsey was asked to come up with some idea of what the global impact of emerging technologies would be. So through their study, they concluded that emerging technologies like mobile and the Internet of Things could contribute as much as 9.6 to $21.6 trillion to the global economy. That was the good news. The bad news was the issue with cybercrime. By their estimates, if we can't do a better job of reining in the cybercriminals, the global impact of cybercrime could be as high as $3.6 trillion by the end of 2020. That's nearly 14% of the 9.6 to $21.6 trillion that they estimated would be the positive global impact of emerging technologies. In their mind, this is a serious issue. There's been other studies that confirm this. Some go as high as estimating a $6 trillion cost by the end of 2020. A second study I like to include when we talk about information or cybersecurity is one that was conducted by IBM a few years ago. And in this particular study, IBM went out and talked to about 2,400 security and business continuity professionals in 37 countries in 20 different industries. And what they asked those professionals to do was to consider for their own organizations a 24-month period of time and to estimate the total cost of all low, moderate, and high-impact security or continuity failures at their particular organizations. And this slide provides a summary of what they discovered. Now, you'll notice there's a, a white uh, circle inside a donut. 
that total of $19.6 million is the average cost of all low, moderate, and high-impact security failures or events for that pool for a 24-month period of time. That was the average. Now, to be fair, this is weighted a little bit because there were multinational organizations included in this study. However, as you look at the colored edges of the donut, you'll notice six different categories. And the distribution of costs among these categories was fairly consistent among small, medium, and large-size entities. And on the left, you'll see technical support and forensics. Technical support and forensics, I think most of us would consider IT-related costs. What's really interesting, though, is if you look on the right-hand side of the compliance and regulatory, reputation and brand damage, lost productivity, and lost revenue. Those, by most people's estimation, are business costs. And if you ignore the dollar amounts for a moment and simply look at the percentages, what you'll notice is less than 25% of the financial impact of security and continuity failures is IT-related, technical support, and forensics. Over 75% of the financial impact is compliance and regulatory, reputation brand damage, lost productivity, and lost revenue. Business costs. Business costs make up over three-fourths of the impact by cost category of security failures. So what I'm really trying to strike at here with these two studies is to make an argument. You know, I opened with the Girl Scouts asking you to adjust your perspective. The McKinsey and IBM studies, though, I think introduced this notion that we really need to start thinking differently about cybersecurity and information security in general. Because at the end of the day, information and cybersecurity risk really is business risk. And talking about that, I think this is probably a great time to drop in a polling question. So, Mike, if you could help us out by dropping in our first polling question. That is terrific. You know, we often ask this type of question in our presentations, and it probably wouldn't surprise you to hear that uh, it hasn't been that long ago that most people said no or didn't know. So it sounds like everybody's on the right track. And again, that kind of ties into the theme of the presentation as well. Uh, you know, we really think IT risk and cybersecurity risk is business risk. So great job, everybody. So let's transition and let's talk a little bit about, you know, where are the imminent threats? And to be fair, uh, there's a lot of threats that businesses face today as it relates to cybersecurity. Uh, what we try to do is pick the top three threats that we see amongst our client base and that we think are prevalent amongst organizations like those represented on the webinar today. And those threats we categorize into three areas, uh, ransomware, social engineering, and specifically phishing, and the Internet of Things. So let's get started. Uh, ransomware. Uh, this is a threat that typically involves somebody gaining access to your privileged information on your network or your computing devices. Uh, they'll typically encrypt that, make it unusable to you unless you're willing to pay a ransom to get the security keys that are necessary to unencrypt that data. In its simplest form, this is extortion, and the payment method is usually done with some form of digital cash, like Bitcoin. What makes this one something that we think you ought to consider is the, the huge growth rate that we're seeing in ransomware amongst small to mid-sized businesses. Ransomware, in fact, is growing at an annual yearly rate of 350%. Ransomware grew 350% over the last year. And in fact, when we look at it in detail, in 2016, just last year, 40% of the spam emails, those emails that litter our inboxes, 40% of those emails contain links to ransomware. That's a 6,000%, 6,000% increase over 2015 when less than 1% of those spam emails contain links to ransomware. And what's it costing? Many estimates state that global ransomware damage is predicted to exceed $5 billion in 2017. $5 billion, up from only $325 million in 2015. And another IBM study 
that took a look at ransomware, one of the questions it asked was, how many ransomware targets actually pay the ransom? And what IBM found is that 70% of business ransomware targets paid the ransom. And half of those people paid over 10,000, 20% paid over $40,000 to regain access to things such as financial records, customer records, intellectual property, and to get the data back so that they could continue to function within their business. 70% of business ransomware targets paid that ransom. So what can we do about that as business professionals? As we go through these three sets of emerging threats that you face, we're going to introduce something we call the lion slides. So these lion slides are takeaways for you from this presentation. And what they are is they're questions that we think business managers and leaders should ask as it relates to cybersecurity. The important thing to note here is we're not suggesting that on all these questions that you necessarily have to know the answer or be the person that implements the solution. But we think these are relevant questions if you're taking an active interest in cybersecurity itself. And you're going to see a theme that we often talk about, staff training. And it's no different with ransomware. The question to ask is, are we training our staff on cybersecurity best practices? What are we doing within our organizations to provide frequent reinforced training and testing of our staff on how to respond and deal with technology to prevent us from being exploited by cyber attacks? And if you're not doing training, it's one of those areas we'd strongly recommend that you start. There's free training available from a lot of different organizations. There's training you can buy, but this is certainly something that we think is important for businesses like ours. Get started training your employees so that they're part of the solution and not part of the problem. Ransomware specifically, as we described it, involves the cyber attacker encrypting your data. So one of the things that we think is a good countermeasure to that is making sure that you have all of your critical information backed up and that those backups are being taken offline. And the reason that's important is if a cyber criminal gains access to your network and is able to encrypt your production data, if your backups are stored on the same network as your production data, it's possible, if not likely, that they'll encrypt those as well. And the backups themselves are an important countermeasure to ransomware, especially if you find yourself in a position where you decide not to pay or you pay the ransom and you do not get the keys necessary to regain access to your data. And then finally, an important question to ask, are you testing your ability to revert to backups during incidents? Are you doing the backups? Are you getting them off the network? And do you routinely test to ensure that those backups will be available when you need them? Uh, many times when we're out talking to clients, and especially, unfortunately, recently, we've stumbled across a few instances where the backups weren't good and their option, whether they paid or not, didn't exist. They were forced to pay the ransom to get their data back. So those are three important questions we would suggest that you consider. Incident response plans. Uh, to be fair, most small to mid-sized organizations don't have incident response plans. If you do, you know, kudos to you, congratulations. Uh, if not, you can still go through the exercise even if informally. You know, given the rampant increase in ransomware, talk to your people, talk to your service providers, ask the question, what would we do in the event that our information got ransomed on our network? What would the process we would go, go through to restore the backups? What processes do we have in place to test and ensure that those backups are working? And how would we know that we got the ransomware off of our network? Having a plan ahead of time is much better than dealing with the issue you know, when it happens. Kind of the same thing with business continuity. A lot of organizations uh, don't have fully tested business continuity plans. If you don't, you're in good company. However, I do think it's important as management to ask the question, you know, how long could our critical business processes run without access to our information systems. What does that look like? How would we be able to operate in a diminished state? And have we done anything to test ahead of time to ensure that we would be able to do that? If you haven't, we would suggest that you start. Would a formal business continuity and incident response plan be advisable? Certainly, but don't let 
let that stop you from at least having the conversation. And then vulnerability patching. This is a little bit more technical, but are you patching known vulnerabilities on your systems and your applications? Uh, there was a major credit bureau incident that happened earlier this summer, and if you followed that, you know, uh, you will notice that Equifax, as the news came out, they didn't patch known vulnerabilities in their systems that allowed the cyber criminals to exploit those weaknesses. Patch your systems. Ask your IT people, ask your service providers. You don't necessarily have to know how it works, but the question is important and one that I think you should ask. And this last slide is a little bit of doom and gloom. This is actually a screenshot off of something we call the dark web for a cyber criminal entrepreneur. What this site will allow you to do if you register is it will create a virus for you that you can distribute to install ransomware on people's computers. And not only will they create it for you, they'll actually handle the anonymous currency. And if you're a low volume subscriber to the service, they'll take 30% of whatever the ransom is and then credit 70% to your account. The reason I included this is you don't have to be a sophisticated cyber criminal to invoke ransomware on somebody. You could be a disgruntled employee, a competitor, or just somebody that randomly comes across your website and your resources and they could inflict this particular threat against your network. And as we talked about earlier with the slide, it's growing exponentially. And the reason is, as IBM pointed out, most people are willing to pay the ransom. That brings us to our next polling question. So Mike, if you'll help us out. You bet. And this one I think is, do all your employees clearly understand their security roles and responsibilities? Do all your employees understand their specific security roles and responsibilities. And we'll give you a minute to answer that. Why we're talking about that too, and, and you respond to that question, uh, you know, we have some handouts for you that are included, uh, you know, with the webinar slides. And uh, at some point, we'll ask that you get those downloaded. We'll talk about them a little bit later in the presentation. But great. All right, well, I would encourage you to give that some thought. And uh, you know, it's, it's very important. I think part of this is the security and awareness training, uh, but having accountability and responsibility for cybersecurity is an important part of getting your arms wrapped around that. And it's very important for your employees too, because not only should you be assigning responsibility, but employees oftentimes need to know who to go to you know, if there is such an incident. So, uh, that's one that I would encourage you, as time permits, to consider and evaluate. The second of our three imminent threats that we're going to talk about is social engineering. And social engineering, in the broad sense, talks about how we prey on the human element, how we attack the human, if you will. And the notion behind social engineering is that we're going to use some technique uh, to get people to do something they wouldn't normally do. Uh, that might be to reveal sensitive information, uh, it might be to do something on the network, or it can actually be as simple as letting us pass through a locked door into a secure facility. Uh, for our presentation today, we're going to talk about a specific type of social engineering called phishing. And phishing is a digital form, and it's typically associated with what we do to lure, that's the name phishing, or the play on the word phishing, uh, people to reveal confidential information uh, that is generally done or initiated through email. Uh, and it usually gets the user to either reveal that information via the email or perhaps go to a website where they would do that. Uh, the reason we've included this one in our uh, imminent and serious threats is, again, like ransomware, uh, it's big business. Uh, in fact, more than 400 businesses every day are targeted by one form of phishing called business email compromise. Uh, I like to call it CEO fraud because I think it's a little bit easier to remember, but the basic model or notion between business email compromise is that one of your employees gets an email and it'll usually look like it comes from somebody in authority. 
that's CEO fraud, in which the criminal pretending to be the CEO is requesting some type of financial transaction. There's usually a sense of urgency. Hey, this is the CEO. We just closed the big deal with the new business partner. We've agreed to make an investment of $10,000 in the relationship. I need $10,000 wired transfer to this account. Uh, and as you know, you know, I'm traveling. I'm not going to be where I have access to phone or the internet till Monday. It's Friday afternoon. I need to get you, have you get this done by the end of business. And a lot of times, the very successful cyber criminals have actually profiled the CEO, so they may even know that he's on vacation. And certainly, if they've compromised his email account, they have additional, you know, the data they need to uh, perpetrate this type of fraud. 400 businesses are targeted by that type of attack alone every day. And in fact, the FBI has what they call an Internet Crime Complaint Center, and they monitor these types of attacks. And for BEC compromises or the CEO fraud, they estimate that there's been $5 billion in losses between October 2013 and the end of last year. That there were more than 24,000 victims reporting these incidents worldwide. And those are just the people that reported it. So it's, it's a, a very lucrative business for the criminals, especially if they can induce your employees to do some type of financial transaction because it's after all the money that they're looking for. Another type of phishing that's on the rise, in fact, we've seen an 870% increase just in 2017 is something that we call W-2 phishing. It's kind of a similar process, usually comes from a senior executive, but now, rather than targeting somebody, let's say, in your accounting or finance group, they're targeting your HR and your payroll people. And the message usually goes something like this. Hey, it's me, CEO, just finished a meeting with the legal counsel on that uh, compensation lawsuit. Uh, counsel needs the last three years of W-2 information for all employees. Uh, you know, we're going to trial soon. We need this handled immediately. Send the data to and then what happens is the employees that respond then divulge a bunch of confidential employee information. A senior executive with the IRS was making a presentation to an HR group earlier this year, and she even noted, in her words, how brazen the cyber criminals had become. And she cited one particular incident in which the criminals had convinced somebody to share W-2 information and send it to them. Problem was, once they got it, the information wasn't in a format that was convenient or easy for the criminal to use to monetize it. So the criminal got back in touch with the employee that had given it to him originally and asked for it in a better format. And the employee complied. And it wasn't necessarily that the employee wasn't paying attention. This is an example that we included to point out that the cyber criminals are getting really, really good at this. It is one of the, the, the modes that are on the rise, an 870% increase. So what can you do about that? Uh, back to the lying questions again. Uh, and again, these are directed towards management for you to be asking within your organization, your IT group, your risk group, your security providers. Are we training our staff to recognize these types of social engineering and phishing attacks? And if we are, are we doing anything to test their understanding? You know, one of the things that we recommend to our clients is you should be training people on social engineering, you should be training them on phishing, and then you should be testing that awareness. We do that for our own employees. Uh, we provide training. Uh, we use an organization called Know Before, but there's a lot of them out there, where we will simulate phishing attacks against our employees and then if they fall victim to the attack, then we give them a lesson to show them what they did, you know, what mistake they made, and, and how we tricked them so that they can get better at that type of thing. And then bring those to us when they're not fake so that we can appropriately deal with them. Uh, email. You know, are we revealing personal or financial information via email? Are we emailing W-2 information as an example in a W-2 phishing attack? Or do we respond to solicitations for that information, which a lot of times will include a link to a website where we're expected to upload that? These are important questions, and I think they're questions you can ask of your own employees. Uh, what about websites? You know, are we sending sensitive information over the internet 
without ensuring that the site in which we're exchanging the information is legitimate. And that kind of ties into our next point about URLs. Have we trained our employees to pay attention to the URLs of the websites that they visit? Do our employees understand that the bad guys can create URLs that are very similar to what we're used to seeing but might be off to a misspelling or an additional prefix or suffix tacked onto the URL? They need to understand that and be suspicious of that. And a lot of times those URLs come in the form of email with links to them. And then protection, what can you do? And again, this is a, a bit more of a technical issue, but certainly one that I think you should be fully capable of sitting down and having a conversation with your employees about. Are we installing and maintaining the antivirus software and firewalls and email filters that we can use to reduce some of the bad traffic? And are we taking advantage of technologies that are available to us to help thwart phishing attempts, either through our email clients or our web browsers? Very important questions to ask. Which leads us to yet another polling question, polling question number three. And this one, again, is touching on the people component. Do your organization's hiring and termination practices for your staff take information security issues into account? Do your hiring and termination practices take information security issues into account? You know, if you have employment agreements, do you spell out your expectations as it relates to information cybersecurity? Or at the time that somebody is leaving the organization and you're checking them out, do you remind them of what their obligations are? And the responses for that are yes, no, or don't know. Now, it's not an uncommon distribution. Uh, you know, clearly that's something to, to think about, talk about. If you have HR folks, I think that'd be you know, a great question to uh, visit with them about in your next meeting. Uh, again, you know, hiring and termination are great points in time. You know, when you're doing the onboarding, you know, I think it's important that we make people understand what their roles and responsibilities are, certainly what our expectations are. And to the extent that that might involve uh, proprietary information or information that that employee had access to uh, during the term of their employment, uh, I don't think that's a bad time to remind them of their obligation and uh, ensure when you check those employees out, you know, that you're getting all the accounts uh, turned off and terminated in an appropriate manner. So uh, those are some of what we would consider best practices and uh, at least worthy of discussion. I mean, you can decide in your own environment what makes the most sense. The third imminent threat area is what has come to be known as the Internet of Things. And when we refer to the Internet of Things, we're talking about electronic devices, things that contain embedded technology uh, that can communicate with the outside world. Uh, typically, they'll sense or interact with something in their internal state or the external environment. So it could be a web-based uh, home HVAC control, it could be a security camera, uh, it can be fitness equipment that we wear on our body that communicates to the internet. Uh, it can be you know, things on the internet that are managing machinery if we're in manufacturing. Uh, these all kind of fall under the definition of the internet of things, or things is the operative term. What's interesting about the internet of things, and it poses great opportunities, obviously, for us, but is the incredible uh, growth rate. This particular, the numbers from this particular study are a few years old. Uh, some people argue that the number was too small, others that it was too large, but you know, there tended to be a consensus, and still is, that by the end of 2020, we will probably see up to 50 billion, 50 billion electronic devices on the internet. I was just reading an article last night, to be honest with you, that, that said that number is 200 billion. Regardless of the number, it's big. And if we stick to 50, what you'll notice is if you compare that to the human population, that would be nearly seven things for every man, woman, and child on the planet. Seven internet-connected things for every man, woman, and child on the planet, which is phenomenal on its own right. But when you look at the rate at which the internet-connected devices are growing, it dwarfs the rate of growth of recent trends like mobile devices and personal computers. And by itself, 
isn't an issue, except for the fact that there's a lot of manufacturers that are trying to take advantage of the Internet of Things and they're rushing products to market. And in that rush, unfortunately, one of the things that doesn't get the attention that it merits is cybersecurity. So let me share some statistics with you that are a little bit disheartening. ICS CERT. ICS stands for Industrial Control Systems, and CERT is the Computer Emergency Readiness. Uh, there's a, a group of organizations embedded within CERT, including ICS, that are managed by the government and private industry that do a lot of research on emerging trends in cybersecurity. And they recently reported in their research that they found 300 machines from 40 different medical manufacturers that have hard-coded passwords. You know, what that means is, is that they're hard-coded and they're well-published. So anybody that could gain access to that device could gain access to the administrative controls associated with those devices. Uh, it's a broad range of vendors, falls into a broad range of categories, but includes such things as pacemakers, uh, drug infusion pumps, patient monitors, uh, ventilators, all medical devices that are incredibly important, an important part of you know, the healthcare delivery system, but which have known vulnerabilities. A U.S. CERT, the United States Computer Emergency uh, Readiness Team, and NIST, National Institutes of Standards and Technology, just issued a draft report that's 354 pages long. A 354-page report for medical manufacturers on how to address cybersecurity issues and drug infusion pumps. Uh, I have a number of friends, that one in particular that works in this industry, when I stumbled across this report, I shared it with him. And about a week later, because he read the 350-page report, he was actually able to summarize his response in three words. This is progress. This is progress. I mean, these are internet-connected devices, many of them. You know, that are responsible for safety, life, and health, yet they still have these types of vulnerabilities. This is uh, an actual screenshot from a study. A couple cybersecurity researchers worked with a journalist, and they did a proof of concept, not of driverless cars, but of cybersecurity vulnerabilities in the kinds of cars that you and I drive every day, right? People-driven. And for this particular proof of concept, this journalist went out to a fairly remote area and was driving this particular automobile while the researchers sat in their office and connected to the onboard computing system over the Sprint network. And Sprint has a, a network, and there's nothing wrong with Sprint, don't get me wrong, but it was the wireless network that was used to communicate to the onboard computing system. And so this fellow was driving down the road, and it started off innocently. You know, they took control on this cold day of the AC system and uh, turned the AC on to high. And he kind of expected it, so that was fine. So he continued to drive. They then activated the heated seat, in which he's thinking, wow, you know, this is a little bit scary. Uh, where it got to the point where he didn't want to participate anymore and pulled off the road is when they were able to take control over the drivetrain in the automobile and caused it to downshift and actually caused the car itself to become less easy to control, at which point, even knowing what was going on, he pulled the car off the side of the road and terminated the experiment. Now, the good news is these researchers shared their research with the automobile manufacturer who recalled 1.4 million vehicles after the proof of concept. You know, the issue, though, is the fact that he was able to do it to start with. And, you know, the argument being that, again, in the rush to automate so many things that we connect to the Internet, sometimes the cybersecurity components aren't given the amount of uh, attention that, that they merit. And then you've probably remembered stories about thieves hacking uh, the keyless entry systems to steal cars. Uh, that's in the news quite often. Uh, the final thing I wanted to, to cover on the Internet of Things, and this is a little bit technical, but I suspect whether you knew it or not, you were probably impacted by this. Uh, uh, late last fall, uh, there was a massive what we call denial of service attack. It's a fairly technical term that I'll explain. But the person or the entity, excuse me, that got attacked was Dyn Systems, D-Y-N. 
And Dyn fulfills a, a very important service on the internet in that they're kind of like the yellow pages. So when you go to hhuniversity.com, that human readable URL that you keyed into your browser has to be translated into the addresses of our servers uh, up in the Azure cloud. And Dyn is one of the entities that provides that service. Well, late last fall, uh, there was a particular type of malware called Mirai, M-I-R-A-I, whose specialty was to go out onto the internet looking for Internet of Things devices that it could exploit. And it exploited millions of devices, many of which were security cameras, by the way. By taking advantage of predefined usernames and passwords, it took advantage of that vulnerability, took control of those devices, and had each of those devices start issuing requests to Dyn Systems to look up and translate user-readable, what we call domain names, like hhuniversity.com, and translate those into, the, uh, into an address on the internet. The problem with that is millions of devices were unleashing millions of requests, and that flooded out all the legitimate requests, and it brought a number of marquee brand name services down for a limited period of time on the internet. Now, it was a very technical attack, but what was interesting about it is when the researchers figured out what had happened and they reverse engineered the code and looked at it, in their words, it was some of the crappiest code that they'd ever seen, and they quickly concluded that the programmers that created this malware actually weren't great programmers. But the point I wanted to share with you is what they discovered in the programs is they had a large table of device names with predefined usernames and passwords, which were generally available, kind of like what we talked about with the pacemakers and the medical infusion pumps. And they simply wrote this software to go out on the internet and troll for devices that would respond to requests and logged into those devices using those predefined usernames and passwords. And as a result, we're able to wreak this type of havoc. Now, most of our organizations aren't going to fall victim to denial of service attack. Although I have to tell you, I was at a conference earlier this week of governmental entities where the question was asked. And most of the, the small municipalities and small counties that were at this conference actually raised their hand and said, yes, you know, being governmental entities, they were subject to this type of thing. But the question is, what are we connecting to our networks that could expose us to that type of risk? If it's not a denial of service, somebody taking control of a piece of equipment that we connect to our network. And so the next time you, as management, get a request from somebody for, or a proposal to spend money on the latest gadget that is going to be able to be controlled from your iPhone or your iPad, I think you need to fully understand the capabilities and associated risks with that particular device. And is that the best solution? Should you be doing that? Is it necessary or is it just cute and fun? Because as soon as you start connecting devices to your networks and connect them to the Internet, you, know, you can become a victim of these types of attacks. If you are connecting devices onto your network, you know, we would recommend that you talk to your IT people and ask if that's being isolated. As an example, at our firm, we use Internet-capable security cameras, but they're isolated from our business network. In other words, those cameras are not on the same network as the systems that run our accounting and our payroll, you know, and the services that we provide clients. We explicitly separated those to avoid those types of issues and problems. And we don't allow those devices to connect and communicate with other devices on the internet or even on their own network. Uh, we just don't think that's appropriate. And interestingly enough, you know, our camera system has the ability, it's turned on by default, to allow Wi-Fi connections. And again, we turn those things off. Now, I don't know what devices you might be using in your environment. You know, you have heating and ventilation systems or security cameras. Again, you don't need to know the specifics, but I think it's a very important question to ask or put forth with whoever is responsible for connecting those types of devices to your network. Uh, do you purchase those devices from reputable sources? Uh, many of the devices that were exploited in that Dyn attack that I told you about were from cheap manufacturers from overseas that had not given any consideration to security. 
And are you updating those devices when security patches are made available? Or maybe more importantly, you should ask if you're using these kinds of devices, is somebody monitoring to know if those security patches are available? And are we changing the passwords and uh, using strong passwords on those devices? Uh, this particular screenshot, I mentioned CERT a couple of times. Uh, U.S. CERT is the United States Computer Emergency Readiness Team. I, I referenced ICS CERT when we were uh, talking about the medical devices. This is a great place to send somebody in your organization to and have them subscribe to alerts. Uh, for those of you uh, uh, that subscribe to our alerts here at AJH and our clients, you'll probably recognize we'll frequently send some of these out. Uh, you know, it's going to need more email for somebody, but uh, it's usually good stuff. Uh, you know, to give you an example of the types of things, uh, you know, we got some just a few weeks ago. Uh, the tragedy that happened in Vegas and then the natural disasters with the hurricane uh, resulted in a lot of cyber criminals preying on people that were trying to do good. Uh, the FBI and the CERT issued alerts and what to look out for and what to avoid. Uh, you know, things like ransomware, they're constantly issuing alerts, uh, phishing. So this is a great place to go. Sign up for that and make sure that somebody in your organization is monitoring those and sharing them as appropriate. Uh, and we're going to have one more polling question before we get to the last lap. Uh, this one's a little bit more involved, but uh, this question is, does your organization have documented reviewed and tested business continuity or emergency operation plans, disaster recovery plans, and or contingency plans for responding to emergencies? Yes, no, or don't know. We talked to this a little bit uh, when we were in the ransomware section, how a little bit of uh, pre-planning and awareness of what you would do uh, when an event happens is important and uh, it, it's good to do, so I'm kind of curious to see uh, what everybody thinks about this. And as with the other questions and the line questions themselves, uh, there's nothing wrong with not knowing whether you're addressing those issues or asking those questions. Our goal, though, is to ensure that you're aware that these are important and a worthwhile thing to do. Okay, pretty typical. Um, for those of you that said don't know, uh, again, if you would allow me to be so bold, uh, I think my challenge to you uh, would be to talk to the people in your organization uh, that would be responsible for that and uh, find out if you are, and if not, maybe why not, and what you can do to improve in that area. Which brings us, by the way, to the last few minutes of our presentation, where what I'd like to talk about is what is an appropriate management role as it relates to cybersecurity. And you know what would that role look like in your particular organization? And I kind of started, uh, you know, with the Girl Scouts, and I thought it would be appropriate to end with the Girl Scouts too. And that is to talk about what uh, we're calling survival kits. And we created four of these for you to download uh, from the webinar site. And you'll recognize them when you see them. They'll look something like this. They'll be in our color pattern and motif. And what they are is they're documents that we hope you'll download and read uh, and that you'll distribute, you know, within or outside of your organization for that matter uh, to people that, you know, you want to create some more awareness around information cybersecurity. And for the most part, they contain three important elements. Uh, they contain some risk identifiers, uh, some more questions, right? So we had the line questions. Uh, these questions are a little broader and a little more targeted, uh, and then some recommended actions. And it's not our goal today to go through these, uh, but we would encourage you to download them at the end of the presentation and use them. But just let me give you a couple examples. And uh, the ones that we create are for the board of directors, uh, senior executives, executives and line managers. And as you might imagine, as you start at the board of director level or whatever you call your governance body, uh, these, these are a little bit broader risk identifiers, broader questions. And as you drill down to line management, they get more specific. So the goal here was to be able to target different roles within the organization with actionable uh, recommendations. 
So I'll just read a couple uh, as an example. So assume now that you know uh, you're talking to the senior governance people in your organization or your board of directors. You know, an area of risk for them, in our opinion, would be if they're unaware of the risk exposures, right? So if they don't understand perhaps that you guys transact a lot of business over the internet, or you're using a web-based accounting system, or that you have a lot of equipment out on the manufacturing line that's being managed over the internet, and it's on the internet of things, then that could be an issue because as the senior governance body, they're responsible for that. Or being unaware of legal and regulatory requirements. You know, if you're in retail, being subject to the payment card industry data security standards, or if you're in healthcare, HIPAA. Uh, and then a question that we would normally suggest uh, for the board is, does management know who is responsible for security? If the board can't answer that question, they probably should be able to. And does the responsible individual know who's responsible for cybersecurity? And do the employees know? So those would be some of the types of questions that we might ask at the board level. And then the actions, I'll just leave it with a simple one. Uh, the board should probably assign cybersecurity responsibility to somebody in management, somebody that can ask the kinds of questions that we've talked about today in this presentation. So I would encourage you to download these and read them. Uh, if you're interested enough in this topic that you survived through the webinar, I think you'll find all four interesting. Uh, feel free to distribute them and share them as you deem fit. So why do we do that? Uh, well, this is probably my third subtle ploy. Uh, the first two were to ask you to adjust your perspective and to think differently. Uh, this one is to be proactive. Uh, don't wait for the event to happen. Uh, get out ahead of it. Uh, we think the lying questions and we think these information Security survival kits are a great way to get started. Uh, again, these were designed for people like those of you that are on the webinar today. Uh, we try to keep them at a business level. You don't have to necessarily understand the engineering behind some of the technology to understand that, that you need to ask important questions. So we talked about why it mattered. Uh, we talked about the three imminent threats. You know, ransomware, social engineering, and the Internet of Things. You know, this last session was on management's role. Again, the overall purpose for this was to give you just a little bit better understanding of some of the most dangerous cyber threats. You know, we covered the big three, if you will. Uh, the, the lying questions, give you some questions to ask. So you can go back uh, to the office or the next staff meeting uh, and talk about how you can combat uh, those types of attacks with the ultimate goal, of course, being to defend your business. Uh, you know, you won't win every battle, uh, unfortunately, but I think, you know, using something like the information security survival kits, uh, doing some threat intelligence and getting alerts from places like U.S. CERT, uh, hopefully can position you in a way uh, that you can avoid fighting on some of these fronts. Uh, every victory counts, obviously. Uh, and so with that, I'm going to take a look and see if we have any questions because we've got a few minutes left. And Mike's going to talk to you a little bit about the HR credit. So Brian, I had a few questions come in uh, during the presentation. The first one was, should we start managing our cybersecurity risk by talking to the board first or working with employees on training? In other words, what's the best first step if we're not currently doing anything? Uh, I'm a little biased in that I think a good, sound cybersecurity policy has to start at the top. Uh, the, the cliche, the tone at the top is important. Uh, I certainly think employee awareness training is a critical part of any cybersecurity program. I think it could start at the board level, and I think with the board's endorsement and support, uh, that helps set the tone for everybody in the organization that this is serious. Uh, there's a lot of great free programs out there, but if you elected to pick one that had a cost associated with it, I think making the business case and getting the, the support of the board and the executive management can be, you know, incredibly important. Uh, in the absence of being able to do that, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong, uh, you know, with starting with the employee awareness training. But, uh, you know, I think the board probably could stand uh, to benefit from that as well. 
All right, the next question we had come in is, are there any good resources for developing an incident response or business continuity plan? Uh, yes, there are. Uh, the, the US CERT link uh, has some, some information on that. Uh, there are professional uh, organizations for disaster recovery. Uh, you know, I, shoot me an email and I can send you the links to those. Uh, another organization that uh, I'm quite partial to is called ISACA. Uh, it's isaca.org. And again, I'd be happy to email you that link. Uh, they have a lot of great information on what you know, constitutes a good incident response plan and how to go about doing disaster recovery and business continuity. Uh, I would encourage you, uh, if you're going to pursue that, uh, you know, there's no sense in reinventing the wheel, but start having the discussions today. Uh, you know, if you're concerned about ransomware as an example, you know, having a very specific incident response plan for ransomware, as informal as it may be, is certainly a great place to start. But we can send you some links to that. Uh, like I said, I'm a big fan of ISACA. Uh, the National Institute of Science and Technology, NIST, N-I-S-T, uh, I'm also a big fan of them. They have a, a number of good resources on incident response and uh, cybersecurity uh, and business continuity planning, uh, a great resource. Uh, and then finally, there's the International Standards uh, Organization, ISO, International Organization of Standards, it's actually spelled ISO, though. Uh, they have some resources as well. Uh, so we can send you some, some links on that. Uh, but ITACA and, and NEST uh, are, are, are two great places to start, and uh, they, they have uh, well-established and free resources on doing that. All right. The next question that came in is, what are some questions I should ask my IT staff about our IoT devices and their risks? I, you know, I would start with getting an inventory. I think the first thing I would say is, do we have an inventory of every piece of hardware that's connected to our network? And within that inventory, how many of those are communicating out over the internet? Now, don't be alarmed. Most organizations, when you sit down and say, give me an inventory of all the hardware and software in my network, uh, can't do it, right? So that's a great place to start, you know, even broader than Internet of Things. You need to know what's connected to the network. And then I would ask the, the follow-up question is, are those devices being patched? In other words, is somebody monitoring when there's security vulnerabilities for those devices? And a very simple question is, did we change the default username and password? Let me give you a very simple example. Uh, a lot of us have wireless internet access uh, in our homes, right? So if we're on, let's say, cable or AT&T, and we want to surf the internet or we've hooked our fire stick or our apple tv to the internet we probably have something called a wireless access point and if you do and you're not technology savvy you know your nephew or your kid may have set it up if you go into general retail and buy a networking device like that and hook it onto your network it's designed to work out of the box because marketing decided it would hurt sales if connecting that device to your network you know, you had to hire somebody to set it up. They think they're doing you a favor. It, those devices are communicating and can be managed over the internet, and most of them have default usernames and passwords. We run into a lot of businesses that go by a cable connection, you know, to the internet so the employees can use it, or maybe it's in retail and it's in the reception area. They hook that wireless access point up to the internet, and nobody bothers to go in and patch it. Nobody bothers to go in and change the default username. Nobody bothers to go in and change the default password. And that device is sitting on the internet susceptible to anybody who might just be browsing through addresses to find a device that they can exploit. And if that device is sitting on your network and they take advantage of that device and exploit it, they could potentially use that, you know, as a beachhead to do, to do more. So I would ask, what devices do we have that are connected to the internet? Are we managing them for the security patches? And have we changed the default usernames and passwords? I think that would be a great place to start. All right, thanks. And then the last question that we had come in is, are phones in a VOIP system vulnerable to attack? 
Yes, they are. It depends on the on the phone itself, uh, you know. But yeah, there are phones that are available to that, and the network itself can be available too if it's not configured. 